We have been continuing in our series, uh, digging into the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' seminal teaching about the Old Covenant, about his fulfillment of the Old Covenant, and about a reminder that all of this, then and now, has always been about God's desire, not for your outward obedience but for your heart. So the, the crux of Jesus' teaching looks like this, right? Without spiritual purity, the outward life makes no tangible spiritual difference. Now, that doesn't mean that the outward life can't look better without spiritual purity for some people than it does others, right? Like you can be nice to your neighbors, you can donate to charity, you can be faithful, you can do a lot of things, you can love children and help older people cross the street, you can do all of those fun things. You can volunteer your time. And that's all fine and good, right? That makes you that makes you a good citizen. Right? That means if I've got to choose to to live next to you or somebody else that's that's partying all the time and and just being selfish and doing whatever i'm going to choose to live next to you that's better right for me but even though that life might look good it actually has no spiritual difference to it because without spiritual purity without a heart that's devoted to god all the rest of that is just details And so there's not spiritual bonus points, right? You don't get spiritual bonus points for acting in certain ways if your heart isn't right with God. A lot of us think we do. A lot of us think that's what happens, right? A lot of us think that if we, if we go through some religious motions, if we do some churchy things, if we, if we invoke the name of Jesus Christ in certain ways, right? And then we just try to be good, that somehow that, that that's the spiritual thing that we're looking for. But the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us, no, 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 it's not that way. Right? It's not just about using churchy words, and it's not just about doing religiousy things, and it's not just about trying real hard to be good. But it's about having a heart that is tuned towards God and a heart that desires God in a real significant way. And this is what we have to dig into here. This is what Jesus keeps putting in front of us. And so uh, before we get specifically into the text today, I just want to put this in front of you. Here are five things. Five things um, that we have learned going through the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount. Five things that we know about the law. Now, we should have known these already. But here Jesus is offering us this reframe because... Because Israel had moved so far away from the heart of the law. Remember, we've talked about the gospel, the law, the word of God as this precious gem. But it's starting to get caked with all of this mud and all of this junk and all of this crap. And so now it's not just the law and the word of God and the gospel that we have, but we have it surrounded by all of this other stuff. And Jesus is basically taking a chisel and he's chipping away to try to get back to the purity of this. And as we do that, we're learning some things, right? One, the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law. 
does that mean you should break it? Like, oh, well, the spirit was more important anyway. No, that's not what that means. But here's what it means. It means the law was never meant to be a set of mechanical systems where you could get close to God. The law was never meant to be that. The law was never meant to be a step-by-step guide to how you could get God. The law was meant to be a guide for you once you had God in your heart for you to stay with him and to be with him. But it was never meant for this thing where if you follow these steps, then congratulations, you've put together this thing from Ikea. You know, you follow these things, congratulations, you've got God. It wasn't supposed to be that. So that I can't put that stuff together from Ikea. I don't know why you care about that, but I just wanted to get that off my chest. Anyway, the law is positive as well as it is negative. Sometimes we think about the law of God as this negative thing, right? To stop you from doing bad. The law is in place to keep you away from doing bad. That's what the Pharisees had turned it into, right? We had all of these extra rules and things in place because the law was designed to keep you from sinning. But the law of God is supposed to be something that doesn't just keep us from sinning, but it's actually supposed to promote this righteousness in us to help us not just guard ourselves from doing bad, but to help us actually be righteous, to be right with God. The law isn't an end to itself. You don't just make sure that you followed the law and at the end of the day, click the button and say, yep, followed the law. I'm good for today. No, the law was this thing that you did so that it would help you glorify and grow closer to God. It wasn't just a matter of checking boxes. It was a matter of this relationship with the God of the universe. And what Jesus is showing us by turning everything back to the heart is that God alone is qualified to judge. Not you. Not me. I'm not qualified to judge you. You are not qualified to judge me because you do not know my heart and I do not know yours. Only God is qualified to judge. And then finally, we start to understand this thing that's tragically awful and very hopeful all at the same time. Every human being is commanded to live up to God's divine, glorious standards. And every human being, this is the point that Jesus is making as we look at these heart positions, every human being falls woefully short. And so the catch is, if every human being is required to live up to these standards, and every human being will fall woefully short, the catch is that we have to start to understand as Jesus continues to teach. Because we can't do it ourselves, that our righteousness is going to be found in him. And that it's through him that we will meet these standards. Right, and so this is this is how he continues to unpack this. He's continuing to show us these things, and and today's no different. Right, today he's he's going to explain to us another heart posture. And the heart posture last week was, "Don't be angry," right? Because this anger that is unspiritual, this anger that is uh, full of uh, bitterness and hate, this anger that's tantamount to murder. 
right? Yeah, you can't just physically not go murder people and say, well, I must be righteous then because I haven't murdered. No, it's about the heart. So if you want to kill people, right, if you're looking at people with anger and hatred and vitriol, even if you're not following through, your heart's impure. And spiritually, that's problematic. And today he continues. And today he's going to continue um, the next two heart reframes. We're going to be talking about the sanctity of marriage. Talking about lust and adultery. And we're going to be talking about divorce and adultery and remarriage. And so here's what I'm going to say before we get into this. This text has the potential to be brutal. So I, I made a deal with God probably a decade ago when I was finishing up at school, um, finishing up at seminary. And it was, um, here, here's what it was. It was, okay, God, if I have the opportunity to serve as a pastor, here's what I commit to. And there were a lot of other things attached to this, but, but here's the one that matters for us today. Here's what I commit to. I promise to tell the truth. I promise to just say what your word says to the best of my ability. And I I had to make that promise because I was aware that there were times when it was going to be probably easier to not do that. Today's one of those times. So here's what I'm going to say before we get into this. If this rubs you the wrong way, if this hurts you, if this lands at a soft spot for you, I get it and I understand. But all I'm doing is telling you what the word of God says to the best of my understanding. And I'm going to ask you to do this. If you've got questions, let's have a conversation, right? Let's talk about it. Talk to me, talk to staff, talk to the elders. Let's have a conversation uh, before we just make decisions, right? Uh, Before we get um, angry and march out, because this is one of those things that has the potential to be relationship altering. All right. You're like, okay, well now what are we talking about? (laughs) Well, let's get in. Turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, And we are going to start in verse 27. We're going to end at verse 32. So let's dig in here. Um, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. I want to go out on a limb and say that you've already heard that. That's not the controversial part, right? You must not commit adultery. Um, But I say, this is Jesus now saying, I say, I'm, I'm telling you that the heart of that was not about the physical act of sex, Right, because that's what it had turned into, was you shouldn't commit adultery. And so at the heart of that is, it's turned into this, you're all in the clear if you're not physically having sex with somebody that's not your spouse. But Jesus says that was never what God was really talking about. God was always talking about the heart. God was always talking about what's inside, right? And so, so you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his heart has all, I'm sorry, looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, women, you're not off the hook. Um, the inverse is also true, right? Anyone who looks at a man with lust in her heart, looks at another person, is already committed adultery in his heart. 
And this isn't new, right? When he says, you've heard the commandment, this was a literal commandment. This is one of the 10. You must not commit adultery, right? But they should have known about the lust issue too, because that's in the 10 commandments, right? They had forgotten this part, but it's in there. You must not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, your your, their, their stuff, their male or female servants, their ox, their donkey, anything else that belongs to your neighbor, right? And you're like, that's cool. I only covered the wife of the guy down the street. They don't live next door to me. I'm in the clear. Stop it. It's foolish. This is the point that Jesus is making, is that always, at its core, it was always about this. Right? Because what God is most interested in has always been your heart. It's not whether or not you actually committed adultery. It's whether or not your heart is pure. Right? Again, we looked at this last week, but Jesus makes the point in Matthew 15. Because the reason this matters is because it's in the heart. It's out of the heart that comes these evil things. It's from the heart that murder comes. It's from the heart that adultery comes. It's from your heart that you act sexually immoral, that you steal, that you lie, that you slander, right? You don't just walk into it one day, but it happens because it happens here first in your heart. And so Jesus is saying, look, look, it's not a matter of whether or not you technically are guilty. This comes from the heart. When you lust, you're guilty. You covet, you're guilty. Right? That's the whole point that he's making. Now, here, here's the deal with this, right? We, we understand. We have to be careful because when I say lust, a lot of us can get confused about what lust is or isn't. Um, and so what constitute adultery in your heart? By the way, so, so in, in this mode, I just let's clarify some things. And um, those of you that know me well know that I am absolutely a saint, why are you laughing? Because that was a serious statement. Let me finish. I am a saint, meaning I have come to the foot of the cross and I have put my sin at the foot of the cross and I have been forgiven, glorified, sanctified, and made holy by the God of the universe. I have taken off my sin nature and I have put on the righteousness of Christ. I am, please don't laugh at me, a saint. If you have come to the cross, then so are you. You are a saint. I am a saint that still struggles with sin. I'm a saint, but I still get tripped up by sin. And in that, based on Jesus' very accurate terminology, I am an adulterer. Because I have struggled with lust. And I would venture to say that I am not alone. That I'm not the only one that struggles with lust. See, lust happens. Lust happens when you look twice. Lust happens when you play with temptation. See, temptation does not equal sin. In this instance, temptation, noticing, does not equal lust. 
right? Because here's, here's what happens, right? Satan is really good at tempting. Satan is really good at tempting. And so you might see, right? You might um, encounter something that is tempting. Then you have a decision to make. Do you turn towards it? Or do you turn away from it? If you turn away from it, then you are choosing God's righteousness in your heart, that purity, instead of choosing lust. But if you turn towards it, then all of a sudden what you've decided to do is play with that sin. When you play with that sin, Jesus says that's lust. And that's guilty of adultery. That just is what it is, right? Because in your heart, you have decided to be impure. Now, the reason that matters, right, is because I I want you to be aware of what Satan tries to do, and I don't want you to be defeatist, right? So when when you see the woman who is um, dressed a little more provocatively than you're used to, and it catches your attention, that's not sin, right? That means you have eyes. Then you have a decision to make. Will you look again? Will you not just see her again, but will you look with intention? Will you start to play with that fantasy? Or will you walk away? When you see the person who is overweight with a white beard and bald, that's going to catch your eye. (laughs) You're only human. Again, I don't know why you're laughing at me. All right, how about this? When you see the handsome guy who's fit and muscular, who decides for whatever reason he's going to walk around without a shirt on, you're going to notice that, right? That's not sin. It's not sin until we look again and start playing with it. I I need us to be clear about what we're talking about because the battle is in the heart. The battle for those things happens in the heart. That's what James talks about in James 1. Where does temptation come from? It comes from you. It comes from your desire. Right? Temptation doesn't necessarily come from these external things. These external things are there, but when I see them, my internal desire starts to tempt. Right? But that's not sin. It's not sin until it gives birth to behavior. Right, so I, I have to walk away from it. I can't go back. Right? And this is what Jesus says about this. He says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Now, I want to be clear about this. Jesus is not telling you to mutilate yourself to avoid sin. Unfortunately, there are sects of Um, religious groups 
throughout the course of history that have taught self-mortification as a way to control sin. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not saying that you should pluck out your eyes so that you can't see a woman. There are people who have advocated for self-castration over the course of centuries so that I would not be tempted in this way. Again, not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is saying, right? I mean, he's already said that the issue is a heart issue, right? I could pluck out an eye, but guess what, man? I can still see with the other one. I could cut off a hand, but I, I can still actively engage in sin with the other one. I would imagine that blind people struggle with lust on occasion, right? It's not a matter of what I see or what I can't see, the issue, right? How many of you were over there like, Carolyn, don't, don't be freaked out, but everybody was staring at you a minute ago. <laughs> and they're like, I don't know, Carolyn, do you struggle with lust? <laughs> if you're visiting today, we don't normally point people out like that in the middle of a service and ask that kind of question. But I noticed it from up here. <laughs> so you can ask her later. Anyway, here's the deal, right? Because even then, for those of you that don't know, Carolyn is blind. Otherwise, that would be weird. <laughs> They're like, this is a weird thing to be talking about. It is. Regroup, Hans. Point being, the point Jesus is making here is not that, right? The point Jesus is making is not that, that somehow you can um, physically manipulate your body into your heart doing what it's supposed to do. See, that was what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees, right? The Pharisees had been teaching you that if you could just manipulate your environment, you could manipulate the things that you did or didn't do, that would cause your heart to be right with God. And God's saying, no, 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 all of that stuff comes from a pure heart. So God isn't saying here, Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you really struggle with lust, you better take your eyes out, right? Because then you won't lust anymore. No, 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 it was always a hard issue to begin with. Right? What Jesus is really saying here, though, is you must guard your heart. This is the same way that I would tell an alcoholic, don't go to a bar. Don't walk up and down the liquor aisle fantasizing, even if your intention is not to buy. Right? This is a decision to say, I am ruthlessly cutting anything out of my life that is causing me to stumble. Listen, anything that morally or spiritually traps you, that causes you to fall in sin or stay in sin, is something that you ought to eliminate ruthlessly from your life. That means some of you need to let go of your smartphone. Because you're using it to watch porn. And we know it, right? I mean, I not know that you're doing, but we know that's what people use it for. What, what is it? I just read a statistic a couple of weeks ago that 60% of internet traffic, 60% of internet traffic has to do with pornography. Some of us need to let go of our computers, we need to put restrictions on them. Oh, you know, we need to put restrictions on what our kids are seeing and watching. Some of you need to let go of your cable TV. Right? Because this is intentional. 
That's what, that's what this lust that Jesus is talking about is intentional decision, right? It's intentional to have something in front. It's not like I'm watching a show and there's a sexy scene that happens. And that's right. I said sexy scene at church. Deal with it, right? There's a sexy scene that happens and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Guarding my heart. I'm not rewinding that. We're just moving on. Some of you are choosing things intentionally though, right? You know that as well as I do. Some of you are choosing things intentionally because they have those things in it. And then you're like, well, I'm not really lusting after anybody. And I think Jesus would argue. And Jesus would say, man, if your right eye is causing you to sin, take it out. If your Netflix subscription is causing you an issue, cancel it. The point here is he tells us that we can't be soft with this. Here's what he says, right? He says, gouge it out, cut it out cut it off, deal with it. However harshly it might feel, deal with it, choose fidelity. And here's the thing, the rest of the world will probably mock decisions like that. Remember a few years back when when Mike Pence, when he was vice president, in the midst of a lot of moral failings and a lot of abuse scandals, a lot of me too kinds of things, when Mike Pence would say, you know what, I follow the Billy Graham rule. I won't even sit down and have dinner with somebody that's not my wife. And it was the subject of all kinds of ridicule because the world won't necessarily understand this. It's like, I won't sit down at a dinner table with somebody alone with somebody that's not my wife. We've got to be better at cutting things out of our life. the, The world might mock us. Listen, this means that relationship that makes you feel confused. You don't need to have it. You don't need to have it. The things that you do to satisfy yourself, cut them out. All right, we're getting a little more prickly, but we're not there yet. Still pretty standard stuff. Jesus continues, though, talking about the sanctity of marriage. And here's where he says, so look, you've heard the law say that a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written motion, notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. And so Jesus is taking this and he's expanding, right? He's saying, okay, so look, right? This sexual infidelity is a problem, right? But it comes from the heart. It starts in the heart. And so you need to work really hard to cut those things out, right? Because, and, 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 by extension, what he's saying here is because the only time you're ever allowed to divorce is when sexual infidelity is a part of the process. Paul will later add in 1 Corinthians 7 this word about abandonment, which abandonment is, is something that we can, we can stretch if we try real hard. But what Paul really means is somebody saying to, to their partner, I won't live with you anymore. And, and in those instances... One, I don't have a choice because they left. What am I supposed to do? And in the other instance, they have been unfaithful. Now, here's the thing. When Paul says, or or when, when Jesus says, you've heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce, what he's referring to is the rabbinic practice at the time, which basically allowed for no fault divorce. That should sound familiar. It's something we have in our culture. And the idea of no fault divorce was if you aren't happy in your marriage, you can choose to end your marriage, 
right? And, and Moses did talk to them about the need to write a certificate of divorce in, in Deuteronomy 24. And the purpose in Deuteronomy 24 was, was God not commanding or commending divorce as much as he was offering a certificate of divorce as protection for women. Because the practice at the time when a husband was dissatisfied with his wife for whatever reason, he would just send her away. And then she would be out with no protection. She would be liable for all kinds of things. Right? She was officially still under the authority, legally under the authority of her husband, but he didn't want anything to do with her. She was financially um, restricted. She was um, spiritually locked. She, she needed protection. And so Moses said, look, if this is what you're going to do, you must at least provide your spouse a certificate of divorce. That certificate will protect them. Right? This wasn't a means of, look, you're unhappy. We'll go ahead and do whatever you want. Right? We know this because this is what Jesus says in Matthew 19. He says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But that is not what God had originally intended for marriage. God intended marriage to be permanent. So I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now we're going to get to that. That's a sticky point, right? But he says, whoever, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else is doing it wrong. They're doing it so wrong that the resultant thing when people get remarried is that they'll actually be committing adultery says, this isn't something you just get to do because this was never God's intention for marriage. God's intention for marriage was this. He designed it to be the welding together of two people. The reason we have to go back and understand what God intended marriage to be is so that we can understand why Jesus says this is so significant and why it even matters that it's adultery. Well, it matters that it's adultery because it's, it's the antithesis of God's intention. God intends two people that bind themselves in marriage to be welded together into one. For their souls to be mingled. For their two minds, their two wills, their two sets of emotions, their two spirits to be bound together in a significant way. And the Lord intends that bond to be unbreakable. Why? Because it's a picture of His love for his people. And his love for his people is unbreakable. And so marriage is also supposed to be unbreakable. And the reason that adultery gets a special section, right? Like, like he says, like, like divorce, with, with the exception of adultery, divorce is unacceptable because sex is that thing that's supposed to be the fullest expression of that oneness. This is why sex outside of or before marriage is, is not tenable, right? Because you're expressing that oneness with somebody that isn't your spouse. That's never been God's design. He says, so you've heard the law say that, that a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. He said, ah, that was not God's heart. God's heart was that divorce be a last resort and only in the instance of sexual unfaithfulness. But can I say this? Even with sexual unfaithfulness, divorce is not the first option. Ever. 
Because it was never God's intention that marriages be ripped apart. The provision for divorce is for unrepentant sexual infidelity. So the idea here is, um, and I, you know, I've had these people in my office, right, where, where somebody comes in and says, no, I'm having this relationship on the side, and I have no intention of stopping it. I have no intention of stopping, in which case we would say to the spouse, okay, you're free to pursue a divorce, right? Because somebody is saying, I'm sinning and I refuse to stop. Other times I've had people in my office where where there's two people and, and someone would say, well, I've done this, but I'm repenting of it. In which case I would say, listen, I don't know that we're free to divorce here, right? Because if somebody is repenting of sin, then it's time for us to figure this out. Because while an affair is biblical grounds, listen to me now, listen carefully. An affair is biblical grounds for a divorce. It's also biblical grounds for forgiveness. And that is a hard pill to swallow at times. But God looks at marriage so much stronger than we do. His opinions on marriage are so much stronger than ours. And and there's this thing that we have to reconcile. This issue of what does it mean that if I divorce someone, I'm causing them to commit adultery? And what does that mean in terms of if I'm divorced, whether or not I can get remarried? This is a hard one, and I'm going to be the first to confess that I've not always done this well. Because I haven't, in in my Christianity, I haven't always understood this as well as I needed to understand this. This has been an evolving thing for me over the course of some years, the more I've studied and the more I've understand the will of God here. And here's the thing, right? When you read the Bible it was never all that confusing. I just had a lot of my own foolishness wrapped up in here. But this is, this is the prickly part where we just need to say what, what it says. Um, most people that are divorced do not have a biblical right to remarriage. Now, some of you have been divorced and remarried And I'm certainly not suggesting that you should leave here, go down to the courthouse and file for a divorce, right? We're not compounding sin. The grace of God is rich and full, right? But from what we understand now, what I am saying, if you're sitting here and you are divorced, we have to be real careful because remarriage might not be for you. Here, here's the deal. There are a couple schools of thought on this. Divorce for any reason and remarry anyone, right? This is the cultural thought in our world. You can get divorced for whatever reason and you can get remarried at any time. Lots of people, in fact, there's a, a new statistic out that says, I think it's about over 35% of a people, over a third of people enter into marriage expecting a divorce. It's a cultural issue, Right? That over a third of people that get married, get married expecting that they might have to get divorced at some point in time. There's another school of thought. This one's a hyper-biblical school of thought that doesn't hold water. We just saw in scripture that says you should never get divorced. Therefore, you never get to get remarried. 
right? But, but we know that's not true. Jesus says you can't just get divorced no matter what. But he does say that there are opportunities. Like, like if somebody is re- unrepentantly unfaithful, then yes, you, you can pursue a divorce. Okay, so we throw those two out, and here's the ones that we wrestle with, right? We divorce for biblical reasons. And we have to endorse, because we're understanding the Bible, we have to endorse divorce for biblical reasons. We know that it's unrepentant sexual infidelity. And Paul later adds abandonment. If you are abandoned or if you um, are married to a spouse that will not stop their infidelity, keeps going back to it, then you are open to pursuing divorce. One school of thought says that just because it's a biblical divorce, you never get to remarry. Right? Because marriage was the binding of two souls together, and that's done. And so now you're getting a divorce, and that's fine. But, but here's the thing, right? It's a biblical reason to get a divorce, but you should not seek remarriage. I know a lot of faithful Christian teachers who would take that position. It's not mine. But we know them, and, and, and we respect their teaching. Um, in getting ready for this week, I, I did a survey of all of the pastors that we partner with around town. I can tell you that several of them hold this position and they can argue it from scripture that there is grounds for biblical divorce at times, but you should never remarry. Other pastors will take this position that says, well, you can divorce for biblical reasons. And then after a season of healing, you can remarry. Right? As long as going into the new marriage, everyone is healed and has repented of their sin, we can remarry. There are several pastors around that would hold this position. I'm not one of them either. And then there are a few of us, um, not many actually, that will hold to this position. We can divorce for biblical reasons, and we can remarry eligible people. Eligible people here would be people that have never been divorced or people that have also been divorced for biblical reasons. We go back to the text, right? Anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. And so we would say, look, as much as, as I understand that it's, it's a, a policy we don't love, right? If I've been divorced, even if it was a biblical divorce, I should not necessarily pursue marriage with someone that's been divorced in a way that wasn't biblical. Right? This is Jesus makes the caveat. A man can, uh, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless infidelity is part of it, causes adultery to be on the table. There's a lot. There's a lot to have to wrap our heads around. And I get the questions, right? I get the questions because it's like, well, okay, Matt, but, but what if my divorce wasn't about biblical reasons, but it was a really long time ago and I've grown a lot since then, right? Or the person I want to marry was divorced a long time ago and they've grown a lot since then. Isn't there grace for that? Or, or what if my divorce was before I even became a Christian and now I'm a Christian and I understand, but now I, I want to do it right, Isn't there grace for that? Why would God give me a desire to be in a couple and then tell me that it's not appropriate? 
Why would that be true? I get, listen, I get all of those questions. I get all of those questions. Here's the best way I can answer it. I made a, I made a deal with God when I got out of seminary that if I had the opportunity to be a pastor, that I would just preach it the way I saw it. And as much as I don't love the way this comes across, I think it's the best biblical way to understand this. Jesus actually addresses it. Here's what he says. His disciples looked at him once he was talking about marriage, and they said, if this is the case, man, maybe it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, yeah, maybe you're right. Not everyone can accept this. Only those who God helps. And, and he says this weird thing, and we don't have to dig into it, just the last sentence. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And here's, here's the one. Some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And let anyone accept this who can. You know when I have this conversation most frequently is not when it comes to divorce. When I have this conversation most frequently is when I have someone standing in my office that struggles with same-sex attraction. They're attracted to the same sex. They want to be a good Christian. They want to follow and honor God. But they're attracted to the same gender. And here's what I have to say to them. I get it. But if your intention is to honor God with your sexuality, then you must choose to stay single. Because you can't pursue the relationship you want to pursue and claim to be honoring God. You must stay single. That's the conversation I've had on multiple occasions with people that struggle with same-sex attraction. And I know we don't talk about it as much when it comes to divorce, but it's the same conversation. It's the same conversation. I know that you have a desire to be in this relationship, but if your divorce was unbiblical, then you need to steward your sexuality and choose to be single for the glory of God. And if your divorce was biblical, you need to choose an appropriate person to be in a relationship with somebody who um, has either never been divorced or was divorced in a biblical manner. And the reason for that is because if you're marrying somebody, what, basically what God's saying is, I don't acknowledge divorce that's not for a biblical reason. You might get a legal piece of paper, but God says, I'm not about a legal piece of paper. I don't acknowledge divorce that's not been biblically done. Therefore, while you have legally secured it and you are legally in a new marriage, he says, that's not the way I see it. And we have to figure out that God's standards matter more than ours. So, that's a lot. And that's going to lead to all kinds of questions. You're going to ask me questions about, but Matt, what if somebody is abusive? What if somebody is um, um, not physically abandoned me, but they've emotionally abandoned me because they won't stop being drunk? or high, and they keep gambling all of our money away. Those are extreme kinds of things that we have to deal with. And I would say separation is always a good answer. And there may be times when divorce is the right choice in those. It doesn't necessarily mean that remarriage is the right choice. Now, you want to talk to me about some of that? I would love to have a deeper conversation with you. I could keep talking about this all day, but you don't want that. You've got Pizza Ranch to get to, and I know it. I'm just trying to map out what God tells you here.
And I want to remind you of this. All of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount will inevitably push us to one undeniable conclusion. We need Jesus. If you're here and you're divorced and you're remarried and you're hearing me and you're thinking, man, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Yeah, you need Jesus. If you're here and you're struggling with lust in your heart because, man, we're human and, and oh, it's a thing, yeah, you need Jesus, right? If you're here today and you're wanting to be in a relationship, but you know it's not necessarily what's right, you need Jesus, right? These aren't things we can do on our own. These are things we need Jesus for.